Hey everyone, welcome to On the Shoulders of Giants. This is episode one. My name is Dave Griffith, and I am here with the magician of everything, Max Krug. Uh, Max, say, say hello to everyone. Hello, everyone. So thanks for having me on the show, and it's going to be a great series, I think. It is. I, I mean, Max, Max it, it is our show. So uh, so everyone should uh, should buckle up and uh, and kind of take hold uh, of everything. Uh, so I, I guess a, a little bit of background uh, for anyone listening. Max, I, I like to, to, to say is like the master or the magician of everything, right? So the first time Max and I talked, we were we were connected by a couple of mutual friends. And I think Max made the mistake of asking me like how I had gotten to, to where I am and like my thoughts. And we were talking about on offering, you know, value and figuring out, you know, how, how valuable an actual solution looks like. And, and, and at some point Max said, Max and I were in agreement and he's like, and I also follow this, like this theory of constraints thing. And it explains everything. I, I don't think Max actually said that, that that's more of a Dave, Dave ism of something Max would say. But like from that that first moment, we we just absolutely clicked, and the the path that Max and I have gone down uh, together, talking and learning and kind of discussing different thoughts and concepts, has just been has been amazing to me. And if you guys caught Manufacturing Hub when Max was on it, I think you might have watched Vlad's like brain just drain out of ever just drain out of his eyeballs, like. But you just made it sound so simple. Um, and with that, like, Matt, Max, do you want to give everyone a little bit of your background? Um, you know, will you give everyone a little bit of your background? Sure. So my education is in industrial engineering. So I went to school to be an industrial engineer. I got out of school in the mid-80s, took a job as an industrial engineer at a manufacturing company. company was experiencing significant growth. So we grew tenfold in 10 years. And part, I was the first industrial engineer that they had hired. So a lot of the concepts that I learned in school, no one had ever been exposed to. So as I started to, you know, bring different philosophies and concepts, people would look at me like, what are you talking about? And so I was heavily involved in the industrial engineering society. So it was an industri- Institute of Industrial Engineers. I started to go to their conferences. I started to network with people and learn more about, you know, how to, look at an organization, how to, you know, do process improvement. And so I learned a ton from that and actually applied it. Since I was the only engineer that they'd hired in the company, I was applying it and learning as I was going. So sort of building the airplane as we were flying. And so I understood what worked, what didn't work. And then I decided to go to school and get my MBA at night. So I got my MBA and then, you know, I, they, the company brought in a new, whole CEO and he brought his whole team in and they sort of changed the direction of where the company was going. I wasn't really aligned with that. So I decided to do something else and went and worked for an MEP center and was the director of their operations for 10 years. So probably half of that time I was director, half the time I was a project engineer and I got a lot of training in theory constraints, lean and TQM, Six Sigma when I was doing that job. And really in the late nineties, I got introduced to Dr. Goldratt and the theory of constraints. And I went to one of his week long trainings. And after that training, I was like, wow, where's this been all my life? Cause it sort of aligned with my thinking, but 
what I found when I was trying to implement things in companies, it's like people that had different mindsets. I was having struggles with how to get an implementation that's going to sustain, actually get buy into the implementation. And then once it's in place to sustain it, because people like to go back to old habits. And then about 2000, mid 2005, I, actually went and bought into a business with some people that we bought a business that went out of business and restarted it. So I was working in that business, but because it was a startup, I was doing some consulting on the side to get income. And then I started to develop, you know, training tools and stuff like that and learn more about theory constraints and application. And I was really doing a lot of point solutions. So I'd go in and come oh, we're not training on the uh, lean. We're not training on setup reduction. We're not training on problem solving. And so I was going in and doing a lot of the training. And then part of my training is we do implementation. So I like to train the concepts and then implement the concepts in the company. So if I do problem solving, for example, I'll train them on problem solving, but we'll take problems that the company's experiencing right now and work through the methodology and so not only to get the training, they get the problem solved as part of the training. So a lot of my training is hands-on application, but still I wasn't seeing it translate into, you know, business performance improvement. So I started to step back and say, okay, what am I doing wrong? I'm not using a holistic approach. I'm not using a systematic approach. I'm not looking at the organization as a system. And that's what Dr. Goldratt really taught me. And so I started to really change my focus from point solutions to holistic business solutions. So in, about three years ago, I rebranded myself as Future State Engineering and helping companies re-engineer themselves and to engineer their future state. So that's why the name Future State Engineering. I love the name Future State Engineering, Max. I, th I think I've said it in the past, and uh, as we'll talk about <clears throat> shortly, uh, Max goes and helps to figure out what the current state is, so what you're currently doing, and then helps to design the future state. And that was just that light bulb moment of, oh my goodness, this is just absolutely amazing. So um, my background is, is a little bit different, uh, uh, kind of as Max was joking about building the airplane uh, as you're taking off. Of so my, my background is actually in, in aviation. Well, my technical background is in aviation. I, I decided that I didn't necessarily like college. Um, and so I left college decided I didn't like working in warehouses and smelly factories and all of those things. I uh, went down and got certified uh, with my airframe and power plant certifications. And so I've got a little card in my wallet that the FAA says that I can work on anything that flies. So give or take, we're, we're like 2000 pages of FARs uh, shortening the, uh, the iteration of that. But the FAA says that I can work on basically anything that flies. And so I, I came out with this certification thinking that I'd have a fantastic job opportunity and aviation wasn't doing that well, uh, probably not all that different than it's doing right now. And I decided I didn't want to spend my life bending sheet metal in a sheet metal factory. So I went and uh, I ended up taking a job um, at a OEM machine builder. They built the large gantry machines that drill and rivet airplane fuselage there. And I was like the fourth person that they hired in the Americas. And it was one of those opportunities where I was young and stupid and didn't say no to anything. And so they're like, Dave, you want, do you want to go build a supply chain? We need to find a way to source half a million dollars of parts. Please go drive across the entirety of upstate New York 
go to every machine shop you can, drive over to Detroit to talk to all of the fixture builders over there and go find a place that we can build this stuff in the US. And I'm like, sure, I can do that. And, and I did do that. And then it was a, hey, we've got this huge opportunity to design an aircraft facility. And I'm like, sure, I, I can do that. I don't know how I can do that, but we have this, we have a conference, conference room has a wall. I can go tape stuff up on the wall and we'll figure out how to do that. And, and we had, we had printed probably, I don't know, 300 pages of engineering grid. Um, and a grid graph paper and like that was that was just the conference room and we, we designed built all of the systems uh throughout that and then at, at some point after that i, I kind of decided i wanted to get paid for the stuff i did and i actually at that point went back uh my bachelor's in um in business administration and then i kind of different route than max so i worked in a manufacturer's rep and distributor, we were doing a lot more hardware. Um, and that that is kind of different from a lot of my peers that are, I know a lot of peers that work specifically on software, um, but I was specking out all the sensors, all the cables, all of the you know differential pressure sensors, kind of all of those things. And, um, and yeah, and so I was those. And, and then similar to Max's story, I decided that I wanted to kind of get in the system. So I spent two and a half or three years running a systems integration company. And all we were doing was implementing, implementing, in, implementing mostly data solutions, sometimes tying the, the different machines together. And at, at some point, I actually know exactly the point. I, I stepped back and I'm like, man, like we can deliver million dollar solutions, but to, to Max's adoption point, if we cannot, provide training and get the people to buy in on this is what they need to do. I guess we just did a couple million dollars of work, but at the end of the day, it doesn't mean anything. And I had kind of come to the point in my life where I don't have enough time in life to deliver bad solutions that no one is ever going to use. And so I spent much of the next, you know, two or three focusing on the adoption issue, which kind of led me down a similar path to what, what Max is calling a design sprint, uh, which, which we'll talk about later, and brought me to the point of, hey, we need to start at a higher system level in to figure out the core root cause as to what is wrong with the company so that we can deliver the most valuable implementation service to them. And that kind of brings us up to having a conversation uh, a year ago and just kind of this whirlwind path and this, there are all of these amazing names to this, these concepts that I have. And Max knows all of the appropriate names to these concepts <laughs> and uh, a large stack of eBooks. If eBooks uh, could make a very large stack, a very large stack of eBooks, I think. Uh, so I, I guess I was first like tangentially, um, introduced to, to Dr. Goldratt probably in the early 2000s with a very, very old copy of The Goal, um, which I think if I kept count this year, it had probably been brought up in conversation like 27 times. Uh, so I, I feel like it, it's continuing to go out there, kind of the, the system thinking and look at the enterprise as a series of systems uh, is only going to continue to either more prevalent 
or at least we're going to talk about it more. I think that there are certainly people that understand a variety of systems, and it's very difficult to find a variety of groups or a variety of people who actually can have a conversation about finance, but can also have a conversation about operations. Uh, and so that is, that is one of the most interesting things. And I would say that is kind of one of the goals of this show is to expand everyone's both knowledge, but also viewpoints into not just looking and focusing on the implementation or not just focusing on the specific area of the organization that you are in charge of or you're working in. Because if we look at the system as a whole, there are generally more underlying root cause problems that uh, we can provide significant improvement by looking at. And, and so I, I kind of, I'm going to talk about some of those. Uh, we, we, we briefly talked about Max uh, helping everyone figure out what their current state is. So, so where a company currently is. And we talked about the future state engineering and why he is rebranded and named the company future state engineering, because he literally wants to help you engineer a future state. So Max, you help people understand their current state and engineer their future state through a process that you call a design sprint. Do you want to give everyone like the brief 90 second overview of what a design sprint is? And we'll get more into it in a later episode. Yep. So the design sprint, the reason I developed it was to take companies through a systematic process of transforming their organization. You can apply it to yourself if you want, but there's multiple steps. So we found the first step is we need to agree on what to change. So in any system or any organization, there's all types of opportunities for improvement. The question is which ones are going to change and create significant um, benefit for the company. So the first step is defining what to change. The second step is defining what to change to. So once we agree on the issues, what's the solution? So there's multiple ways to solve problems question is what's the best solution for the organization? Then once we agree on what we need to change to, how do we create that change? So what's the actions that we need to take to transition from the current state to the future state? And then most importantly, sustainability. So the fourth step is sustainability. So once we get to that higher level performance, how do we sustain it? We don't, we don't want to put backslide. So I had early in my career, a lot of issues of implementing a solution and then backsliding and then losing all the benefits. So that's the basic premise of the design sprint is to define those four things. What to change, what to change to, how to create the change, and then how to sustain the change. I love that. Okay. And one of the one of your goals of a design sprint that really resonates with me and I feel like resonates with all of the companies that you work with is you talk about wanting to look for breakthrough improvement, right? Like you don't just want something incremental. If you're going to go in to help a company, you want to have breakthrough improvement. And I think that that mindset is, I think that that mindset is a mindset that all of us need to take when we look at delivering solutions. Like we don't want to get five or 10% better. For, for five or 10%, it almost isn't worth doing the, whatever the implementation is across nearly any group in, in any company. Uh, yep. uh, you know, there, there are some 
major companies that the 5% translates to trillions of dollars, but I would imagine none of those companies are listening to this show. So for all of us, we want to find significant improvement. We actually have a really good example that, that we're going to talk through. Um, do you have any thoughts on breakthrough improvement before we, we talk into the example? Yeah, so to get breakthrough improvement, there's certain conditions. So I'm always talking in terms of necessary and sufficient. So necessary is something that needs to be in place to achieve some outcome. Sufficient means it needs to deliver the, the results. So what I found was for companies to be able to transition to a high performance and get breakthrough improvement, there's necessary conditions that need to be in place. So it's really that everyone has buy-in in the correct mindset. We're all aligned in the same thinking and we have a plan that's actually executable. <laughs> So those are my three necessary conditions. And of course, they need to be sufficient, right? <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. And so we, you have a really good example of a company that has, has a system that they, they call production bonus, right? And you've gone through your, your design sprint process and you are currently working with them to continue to engineer the, their future state. Uh, can, can you tell everyone uh, a little bit about kind of maybe what this company does, but where they were when you started and kind of the steps that you have taken them through and, and where they are now? Yep. So they're a manufacturer. They're makes a stock company. So that means that they produce to finished goods and then they ship from finished goods to the customers. So the customers are looking for when they put their order in to have shipment within 24 hours. So the goal is to have the right inventory in finished goods so that when the customer order comes in, we can immediately ship and service that customer. And so they were struggling. They had a lot of inventory, of course, inventory of the too much inventory, of the wrong stuff, not enough inventory, of the right stuff. They were constantly expediting. Their production lead time was long. They had a lot of whip in production that was clogging up, you know, the stuff that they needed. So they're running massive overtime. So a lot of issues. And so they had a productivity index that they were paying their employees based on how many um, hours per thousand units that they produced. But when we started, that was a departmental measure. So each department was measured on how many parts that they produced in a period and how many hours it took them to produce those parts. And if they had um, met the baseline or got greater than the baseline, there was a payout. So they're really measuring, trying to measure productivity in terms of output per unit of time. And, and I love that. I think that that may be a missing or a key opportunity for many companies looking to help find additional productivity because when we are paying them literal dollars per hour, right? So, so they, they have a bonus and the number is multiplied by the number of hours they work. And so I, I feel like that sets everyone in the right mindset of my goal is not just to sit here and grind out hours. My goal is to help produce as much as possible. And the more we produce, the more literal money we put in our pockets. And yeah. I, I, I love that. That was, that was one of my favorite things. And so, um, 
And I, I love you helping take them shifting from the department, which is kind of that, that very small idea. And you have helped shift them to the entirety of the facility, right? So, so yes. now it's, now it's the same number across the facility. So I think that that's a fantastic example of shift in the mindset that, that we, we've talked about. And so you've helped them, you've helped them shift that mindset. And then can you share a little bit about what, what else you guys have done? Maybe the first couple of steps um, that you find uh, in a normal facility like this and kind of where they are now, six-ish months later? Yeah. So to your point, you know, the departmental metric was produce parts. So produce as many parts as possible. But when we step back, we say, well, we don't want to just produce parts. We want to produce parts that the customers are demanding. Mm -hmm. So, you know, change that perception from, our goal isn't to just to make parts in each department, it's to make the right parts. Mm -hmm. So we had to change their mindset from a departmental measure to a company-wide measure. And the company-wide measure is based on shipment. So if we don't ship it, it's not, we shouldn't have produced it. So if it's mm -hmm. not an item that's going to ship, why are we producing it? So that changed the whole mindset from a, let's just produce parts to let's produce the right parts. Okay, then once we get that mindset of producing the right parts, then we got to create flow. So what's impeding them from getting better flow? So we want to get parts from raw material to shipping in the most effective manner and making the right items. Mm -hmm. And so the breakthrough improvement, their numbers, I can't share exact numbers. So they're in the three and a half dollar range paying mm -hmm. out per hour. So the productivity index was based on, again, number of units, number of hours per thousand units produced. And of course, if you produce more, the units per hour, the hours per unit comes down and you get paid for that. Mm -hmm. But we said, well, we really only want to do that based on shipments. So whatever the shipments are, let's measure that from the shipment perspective and focus on getting more parts of the right parts to shipping and shipping to the customer. So they're in the three and a half to 360 range per hour for that productivity index. We went to the shipping and we really focused on producing the right stuff. We've seen payouts in the eight to $9 range per hour now. That so is double, huge. You know, two and a half times the payout that they were getting before. And that's what we're talking breakthrough. I mean, I, I think that that's amazing. Honestly, Max, I, so I've been to the facility if I hadn't been to the facility, I'm not sure I'd believe you, right? Like, I'm not sure I'd believe that you can go and 3X something in six months and you didn't spend a ton of money, right? Like, No, you, we didn't you, actually invested zero. <laughs> See, Max, Max, this is the issue. This is my number one issue is that no one believes it's possible, right? Like the, the issue is that no one believes it's possible to just relook at their system and triple I, we'll call it triple the output. And I, I for a zero extra additional dollars spent. Uh, so, I mean, one that's amazing. And I think it, I think it's amazing in, in two senses. One, like one, that is significant numbers of dollars that you're putting in every employee's pocket. And so, yes. you know, this is, this is hundreds of thousands of dollars that this company is paying out as bonuses 
every single month for every single hour work for every employee uh, as one and, and two like with, with the business mindset right like can you imagine how much more i mean you actually know but can you imagine how much more money this company is making if they can if they're 3xing the production bonus output so like if their productivity has gone up 3x if they've removed all of this whip if they haven't invested more money i mean i, I would imagine that their bottom line profit has gone up at least 3x i mean it, it's probably gone up more because you probably reduced a significant amount of whip and kind of changed all of that around and so i, I think that, that that is that that is amazing and that doesn't include 50 million dollars of machines right you didn't right. come in and say hey we have to completely redo all of the cnc machines we need to invest half a billion dollars in all new CNC machines because these are the CNC machines that we work at. So, so that, that, that is, that is honestly amazing. Um, and sort of the, so sort of the mindset when I go in and look, you know, I try to do a value stream map of the current system to understand how much inventory is in the system because inventory is an indicator of stored capacity. Mm -hmm. So the more inventory I see, the more stored capacity I see. The question is, can I convert that capacity that was used to build stuff to go into storage, instead use that capacity to build stuff that's gonna to go to shipments? So if I can convert that capacity that was that was hidden to build that inventory and convert that to shipments, how much capacity does the company actually have? And minimum, if you have a lot of work in process, there's 25% capacity that's hidden in the inventory. Interesting. Interesting. All we did is converted that capacity to not building inventory, but to go to shipments, work on the right stuff. Not just work on stuff, work on the right stuff. Okay. I, I love this, Max. And I feel like and I know we will talk more about this. And on the next show, I want to really dig into like the concept of what is productivity and, and, and talk about that. But I guess the last question for you to, to finish this out is, on my perspective, it all seems unbelievable. Like, like quite literally, it seems unbelievable. What do you say to the, the naysayers? What do you say to the, you know, the CFOs, the CEOs, the COOs that are like, Max, I would love if this works, but maybe my facility is different. Or I would love if this works, but I just don't believe it. Like, how do you respond to those people? So need to speak with data. That's why I, I capture, get, gather as much data as I can mm -hmm. as evidence. And it's their data. So they can't argue the facts. Okay, we have 13 weeks of inventory. So how do we calculate that? We look at the number of units in WIP and we look at the customer demand and say, okay, our demand rate is this much per week. We got this much in flow. That's calculates 13 weeks. And, you know, we're running massive overtime. We don't have enough capacity. And I say to them, they have capacity. We're just not utilizing it correctly, right? You can't have 13 weeks of WIP in the system and not have enough capacity. So you gotta use the data that they have and the facts and the facts eliminate the argument. So you gotta use that data to look at it from a different perspective. If we can look at that data from a different perspective, 
now I can get their, you know, how I look at their company as a perception. If they look at it the same way, they can see the same thing that I see. I don't know if you've done those exercises where you have a picture and people look at the picture and, you know, see three different things, right? So how can you see the same thing or have the same picture and see it three different ways? It's all about your perception and perspective. Absolutely. If I can change their perspective, then they can see what I see. Perfect. I, I think that that is probably the best answer anyone can have is that the proof is in the data if you will, and that anyone can go look. And if you're in a C-level suite uh, or, or even a manager, like you should have a fairly good idea of what your work in progress looks like. And if you have 13 weeks of WIP, then if you can convert 25% of that, um, as we discussed, th- that is a big number, especially when many of the companies that we talk about and we'll talk about have millions of dollars of WIP in there. That, that is a lot of that is a lot of dollar value of money that um, that they can go ahead and convert. So I, I, I love this. Um, everyone, uh, thank you for tuning in. So next episode, we're going to continue to talk about the example uh, from the production bonus a little bit. We're going to talk about first steps and we're going to dig into what is productivity. Um, until then, thank you all. Talk to you soon. Bye bye.